Phase the First, Part Five of Tess of the D'Urbervilles by Thomas Hardy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Ten. Every village has its idiosyncrasy, its constitution, often its own code of morality. The levity of some of the younger women in and about Trantridge was marked, and was perhaps symptomatic of the choice spirit who ruled the slopes in that vicinity. The place had also a more abiding defect. It drank hard. The staple conversation on the farms around was on the uselessness of saving money, and smock-frocked arithmeticians, leaning on their ploughs or hoes, would enter into calculations of great nicety to prove that parish relief was a fuller provision for a man in his old age than any which could result from savings out of their wages during a whole lifetime. The chief pleasure of these philosophers lay in going every Saturday night, when work was done, to Chaseborough, a decayed market-town two or three miles distant, and returning in the small hours of the next morning to spend Sunday in sleeping off the dyspeptic effects of the curious compounds sold to them as beer by the monopolizers of the once independent inns. For a long time Tass did not join in the weekly pilgrimages, but under pressure from matrons not much older than herself, for a fieldman's wages being as high as twenty-one as at forty, marriage was early here, Tess at length consented to go. Her first experience of the journey afforded her more enjoyment than she had expected, the hilariousness of the others being quite contagious after her monotonous attention to the poultry-farm all the week. She went again and again. Being graceful and interesting, standing moreover on the momentary threshold of womanhood, her appearance drew down upon her some sly regards from loungers in the streets of Chaseborough. Hence, though sometimes her journey to the town was made independently, she always searched for her fellows at nightfall to have the protection of their companionship homeward. This had gone on for a month or two, when there came a Saturday in September on which a fair and a market coincided, and the pilgrims from Trantridge sought double delights at the inns on that account. Tessa's occupations made her late in setting out, so that her comrades reached the town long before her. It was a fine September evening, just before sunset, when yellow lights struggle with blue shades in hair-like lines, and the atmosphere itself forms a prospect without aid from more solid objects, except the innumerable winged insects that dance in it. Through this low-light mistiness Tess walked leisurely along. She did not discover the coincidence of the market with the fair till she had reached the place, by which time it was close upon dusk. Her limited marketing was soon completed, and then, as usual, she began to look about for some of the Trantridge cottagers. At first she could not find them, and she was informed that most of them had gone to what they called a private little jig at the house of a hay-trusser and peat-dealer who had transactions with their farm. He lived in an out-of-the-way nook of the townlet, and in trying to find her course thither, her eyes fell upon Mr. D'Urberville standing at a street-corner. "'What, my beauty, you here so late?' he said. She told him that she was simply waiting for company homeward. "'I'll see you again,' said he over her shoulder, as she went on down the back lane. Approaching the hay-trussers, she could hear the fiddled notes of a reel proceeding from some building in the rear, but no sound of the dancing was audible, an exceptional state of things for these parts, where, as a rule, 
the stamping drowned the music. The front door being open, she could see straight through the house into the garden at the back as far as the shades of night would allow, and nobody appearing to her knock, she traversed the dwelling and went up the path to the outhouse whence the sound had attracted her. It was a windowless erection used for storage, and from the open door there floated into the obscurity a mist of yellow radiance, which at first Tess thought to be illuminated smoke, but on drawing nearer she perceived that it was a cloud of dust lit by candles within the outhouse, whose beams upon the haze carried forward the outline of the doorway into the wide night of the garden. When she came close and looked in, she beheld indistinct forms racing up and down to the figure of the dance, the silence of their footfalls arising from their being overshoe in scroff, that is to say, the powdery residuum, from the storage of peat and other products, the stirring of which by their turbulent feet created the nebulosity that involved the scene. Through this floating, fusty debris of peat and hay, mixed with the perspirations and warmth of the dancers, and forming together a sort of vegeto-human pollen, the muted fiddles feebly pushed their notes, in marked contrast to the spirit with which the measure was trodden out. They coughed as they danced, and laughed as they coughed. Of the rushing couples there could barely be discerned more than the highlights, the indistinctness shaping them to satyrs clasping nymphs, a multiplicity of pans whirling a multiplicity of syrinxes, Lotus attempting to elude Priapus, and always failing. At intervals a couple would approach the doorway for air, and the haze no longer veiling their features, the demigods resolved themselves into the homely personalities of her own next-door neighbours. Could Trantridge in two or three short hours have metamorphosed itself thus madly? Some Selene of the throng sat on benches and hay-trusses by the wall, and one of them recognised her. "'The maids don't think it respectable to dance at the Flower de Luce,' he explained. "'They don't like to let everybody see which be their fancy-men. Besides, the house sometimes shuts up just when their gins begin to get greased, so we come here and send out for liquor.' "'But when be any of you going home?' asked Tess, with some anxiety. Now, almost directly, this is all but the last jig. She waited. The reel drew to a close, and some of the party were in the mind of starting, but others would not, and another dance was formed. This surely would end, thought Tess. But it merged in yet another. She became restless and uneasy, yet, having waited so long, it was necessary to wait longer. On account of the fair, the roads were dotted with roving characters of possibly ill intent, and, though not fearful of measurable dangers, she feared the unknown. Had she been near Marlet, she would have had less dread. "'Don't ye be nervous, my dear good soul,' expostulated between his coughs, a young man with a wet face and his straw hat so far back upon his head that the brim encircled it like the nimbus of a saint. "'What's your hurry?' "'Tomorrow is Sunday, thank God, and we can sleep it off in church-time. Now, have a turn with me.' She did not abhor dancing, but she was not going to dance here. The movement grew more passionate. The fiddlers behind the luminous pillar of cloud now and then varied the air by playing on the wrong side of the bridge, or with the back of the bow. But it did not matter. The panting shapes spun onwards. 
they did not vary their partners if their inclination were to stick to previous ones. Changing partners simply meant that a satisfactory choice had not as yet been arrived at by one or other of the pair, and by this time every couple had been suitably matched. It was then that the ecstasy and the dream began, in which emotion was the matter of the universe, and matter but an adventitious intrusion likely to hinder you from spinning where you wanted to spin. Suddenly there was a dull thump on the ground. A couple had fallen and lay in a mixed heap. The next couple, unable to check its progress, came toppling over the obstacle. An inner cloud of dust rose around the prostrate figures, amid the general one of the room, in which a twitching entanglement of arms and legs was discernible. "'You shall catch it for this, my gentleman, when you get home,' burst in female accents from the human heap, those of the unhappy partner of the man whose clumsiness had caused the mishap. She happened also to be his recently married wife, in which assortment there was nothing unusual at Trantridge, as long as any affection remained between wedded couples, and indeed it was not uncustomary in their later lives to avoid making odd lots of the single people between whom there might be a warm understanding. A loud laugh from behind Tessa's back, in the shade of the garden, united with the titter within the room. She looked round, and saw the red coal of a cigar. Alec d'Urberville was standing there alone. He beckoned to her, and she reluctantly retreated towards him. "'Well, my beauty, what are you doing here?' She was so tired after her long day and her walk that she confided her trouble to him, that she had been waiting ever since he saw her to have their company home, because the road at night was strange to her. "'But it seems they will never leave off, and I really think I will wait no longer.' certainly do not. I have only a saddle-horse here to-day, but come to the Flower de Luce, and I'll hire a trap and drive you home with me." Tess, though flattered, had never quite got over her original mistrust of him, and despite their tardiness, she preferred to walk home with the workfolk. So she answered that she was much obliged to him, but would not trouble him. I have said that I will wait for him, and they will expect me to now. Very well, Miss Independence, please yourself. Then I shall not hurry. My good Lord, what a kick-up they are having there!" He did not put himself forward into the light, but some of them had perceived him, and his presence led to a slight pause and a consideration of how the time was flying. As soon as he had relit a cigar and walked away, the Trantridge people began to collect themselves from amid those who had come in from other farms, and prepared to leave in a body. Their bundles and baskets were gathered up, and half an hour later, when the clock chime sounded a quarter past eleven, they were straggling along the lane which led up the hill towards their homes. It was a three-mile walk along a dry white road, made whiter to-night by the light of the moon. Tess soon perceived as she walked in the flock sometimes with this one, sometimes with that, that the fresh night air was producing staggerings and serpentine courses among the men who had partaken too freely. Some of the more careless women also were wandering in their gait, to wit a dark virago. Car d'Arch, dubbed Queen of Spades, till lately a favourite of d'Urberville's, Nancy, her sister, nicknamed the Queen of Diamonds, and the young married woman who had already tumbled down. 
yet however terrestrial and lumpy their appearance just now to the mean unglamoured eye to themselves the case was different they followed the road with a sensation that they were soaring along in a supporting medium possessed of original and profound thoughts themselves and surrounding nature forming an organism of which all the parts harmoniously and joyously interpenetrated each other they were as sublime as the moon and stars above them and the moon and stars were as ardent as they tess however had undergone such painful experiences of this kind in her father's house that the discovery of their condition spoilt the pleasure she was beginning to feel in the moonlight journey yet she stuck to the party for reasons above given in the opening highway they had progressed in scattered order but now their route was through a field-gate and the foremost finding a difficulty in opening it they closed up together this leading pedestrian was carr the queen of spades who carried a wicker basket containing her mother's groceries her own draperies and other purchases for the week the basket being large and heavy carr had placed it for convenience of porterage on the top of her head where it rode on in jeopardized balance as she walked with arms akimbo well whatever is that a-creepin down thy back carr darch said one of the group suddenly all looked at carr her gown was a light cotton print and from the back of her head a kind of rope could be seen descending to some distance below her waist like a chinaman's queue tis her hair fallen down said another no it was not her hair it was a black stream of something oozing from her basket and it glistened like a slimy snake in the cold steel rays of the moon tis treacle said an observant matron treacle it was carr's poor old grandmother had a weakness for the sweet stuff honey she had in plenty out of her own hives but treacle was what her soul desired and carr had been about to give her a treat of surprise hastily lowering the basket the dark girl found that the vessel containing the syrup had been smashed within by this time there had arisen a shout of laughter at the extraordinary appearance of carr's back which irritated the dark queen into getting rid of the disfigurement by the first sudden means available and independently of the help of the scoffers she rushed excitedly into the field they were about to cross and flinging herself flat on her back upon the grass began to wipe her gown as well as she could by spinning horizontally on the herbage and dragging herself over it upon her elbows the laughter rang louder they clung to the gate to the posts rested on their staves in the weakness engendered by their convulsions at the spectacle of carr our heroine who had hitherto held her peace at this wild moment could not help joining in with the rest it was a misfortune in more ways than one no sooner did the dark queen hear the soberer richer note of tess among those of the other workpeople than a long smouldering sense of rivalry inflamed her to madness she sprang to her feet and closely faced the object of her dislike how darest they laugh at me hussy she cried i couldn't really help it when the others did apologized tess still tittering ah thou'st think thou best everybody doesn't it because thou beest first favourite with he just now but stop a bit my lady stop a bit i'm as good as two as such look here here's at ye to tessa's horror 
the dark queen began stripping off the bodice of her gown, which, for the added reason of its ridiculed condition, she was only glad to be free of, till she had bared her plump neck, shoulders, and arms to the moonshine, under which they looked as luminous and beautiful as some Praxitelian creation in their possession of the faultless rotundities of a lusty country girl. She closed her fists, and squared up at Tess. "'Indeed, then, I shall not fight,' said the latter majestically. "'And if I had known you was of that sort, I wouldn't have so let myself down as to come with such a horridge as this is.' The rather too inclusive speech brought down a torrent of vituperation from other quarters upon fair Tess's unlucky head, particularly from the Queen of Diamonds, who, having stood in the relations to D'Urberville that Carr had also been suspected of, united with the latter against the common enemy. Several other women also chimed in, with an animus which none of them would have been so fatuous as to show, but for the rollicking evening they had passed. Thereupon, finding Tess unfairly browbeaten, the husbands and lovers tried to make peace by defending her, but the result of that attempt was directly to increase the war. Tess was indignant and ashamed. She no longer minded the loneliness of the way and the lateness of the hour. Her one object was to get away from the whole crew as soon as possible. She knew well enough that the better among them would repent of their passion next day. They were all now inside the field, and she was edging back to rush off alone, when a horseman emerged almost silently from the corner of the hedge that screened the road, and Alec d'Urberville looked round upon them. "'What the devil is all this row about, workfolk?' he asked. The explanation was not readily forthcoming, and in truth he did not require any. Having heard their voices while yet some way off, he had ridden creepingly forward, and learnt enough to satisfy himself. Tess was standing apart from the rest, near the gate. He bent over towards her. "'Jump up behind me,' he whispered, "'and we'll get shot of the screaming cats in a jiffy.' She felt almost ready to faint, so vivid was her sense of the crisis. At almost any other moment of her life she would have refused such proffered aid and company, as she had refused them several times before and now the loneliness would not of itself have forced her to do otherwise. But coming as the invitation did, at the particular juncture when fear and indignation at these adversaries could be transformed by a spring of the foot into a triumph over them, she abandoned herself to her impulse, climbed the gate, put her toe upon his instep, and scrambled into the saddle behind him. The pair were speeding away into the distant grey by the time that the contentious revellers became aware of what had happened. The Queen of Spades forgot the stain on her bodice, and stood beside the Queen of Diamonds and the new-married staggering young woman, all with a gaze of fixity in the direction in which the horse's tramp was diminishing into silence on the road. "'What be ye looking at?' asked a man who had not observed the incident. "'Ho, ho, ho!' laughed Dark Carr. "'He, he, he!' laughed the tippling bride, as she steadied herself on the arm of her fond husband. "'Ho, ho, ho!' laughed Dark Carr's mother, stroking her moustache, as she explained laconically, "'Out of the frying-pan into the fire!' Then these children of the open air, whom even excess of alcohol could scarce injure permanently, 
betook themselves to the field-path. And as they went there, moved onward with them, around the shadow of each one's head, a circle of opalized light, formed by the moon's rays upon the glistening sheet of dew. Each pedestrian could see no halo but his or her own, which never deserted the head-shadow, whatever its vulgar unsteadiness might be, but adhered to it, and persistently beautified it, till the erratic motions seemed an inherent part of the irradiation, and the fumes of their breathing a component of the night's mist, and the spirit of the scene and of the moonlight and of nature seemed harmoniously to mingle with the spirit of wine. CHAPTER Eleven, The twain cantered along for some time without speech. Tess, as she clung to him, still panting in her triumph, yet in other respects dubious. She had perceived that the horse was not the spirited one he sometimes rode, and felt no alarm on that score, though her seat was precarious enough despite her tight hold of him. She begged him to slow the animal to a walk, which Alec accordingly did. "'Neatly done, was it not, dear Tess?' he said by and by. "'Yes,' she said. "'I am sure I ought to be much obliged to you.' "'And are you?' She did not reply. "'Tess, why do you always dislike my kissing?' "'I suppose because I don't love you.' "'You are quite sure. I am angry with you sometimes.' Ah, I have feared as much. Nevertheless, Alec did not object to that confession. He knew that anything was better than frigidity. Why haven't you told me when I have made you angry? You know very well why. Because I cannot help myself here. I haven't offended you often by love-making. You have sometimes. How many times? You know as well as I, too many times. Every time I have tried. She was silent, and the horse ambled along for a considerable distance, till a faint luminous fog, which had hung in the hollows all the evening, became general and enveloped them. It seemed to hold the moonlight in suspension, rendering it more pervasive than in clear air. Whether on this account, or from absent-mindedness, or from sleepiness, she did not perceive that they had long ago passed the point at which the lane to Trentridge branched from the highway, and that her conductor had not taken the Trentridge track. She was inexpressibly weary. She had risen at five o'clock every morning of that week, had been on foot the whole of each day, and on this evening had in addition walked the three miles to Chaseborough, waited three hours for her neighbours without eating or drinking, her impatience to start them preventing either. She had then walked a mile of the way home, and had undergone the excitement of the quarrel, till, with the slow progress of her steed, it was now nearly one o'clock. Only once, however, was she overcome by actual drowsiness. In that moment of oblivion her head sank gently against him. D'Urberville stopped the horse, withdrew his feet from the stirrups, turned sideways on the saddle, and enclosed her waist with his arm to support her. This immediately put her on the defensive, and with one of those sudden impulses of reprisal to which she was liable, she gave him a little push from her. In his ticklish position he nearly lost his balance, and only just avoided rolling over into the road, the horse, though a powerful one, being fortunately the quietest he rode. 
that is devilish unkind he said i mean no harm only to keep you from falling she pondered suspiciously till thinking that this might after all be true she relented and said quite humbly i beg your pardon sir i won't pardon you unless you show some confidence in me good god he burst out what am i to be repulsed so by a mere chit like you for near three mortal months have you trifled with my feelings eluded me and snubbed me and i won't stand it i'll leave you to-morrow sir no you will not leave me to-morrow will you i ask you once more show your belief in me by letting me clasp you with my arm come between us two and nobody else now we know each other well and you know that i love you and i think you the prettiest girl in the world which you are mayn't i treat you as a lover she drew a quick pettish breath of objection writhing uneasily on her seat looked far ahead and murmured i don't know i wish how can i say yes or no when he settled the matter by clasping his arm round her as he desired and tess expressed no further negative thus they sidled slowly onward till it struck her they had been advancing for an unconscionable time far longer than was usually occupied by the short journey from chaseborough even at this walking-pace and that they were no longer on hard road but on a mere trackway why where be we she exclaimed passing by a wood a wood what wood surely we are quite out of the road a bit of the chase the oldest wood in england it is a lovely night and why should we not prolong our ride a little how could you be so treacherous said tess between archness and real dismay and getting rid of his arm by pulling open his fingers one by one though at the risk of slipping off herself just when i've been putting such trust in you and obliging you to please you because i thought i had wronged you by that push please set me down and let me walk home you cannot walk home darling even if the air were clear we are miles away from trantridge if i must tell you and in this growing fog you might wander for hours among these trees never mind that she coaxed put me down i beg you i don't mind where it is only let me get down sir please very well then i will on one condition having brought you here to this out-of-the-way place i feel myself responsible for your safe conduct home whatever you may yourself feel about it as to your getting to trantridge without assistance it is quite impossible for to tell the truth dear owing to this fog which so disguises everything i don't quite know where we are myself now if you will promise to wait beside the horse while i walk through the bushes till i come to some road or house and ascertain exactly our whereabouts i'll deposit you here willingly when i come back i'll give you full directions and if you insist upon walking you may or you may ride at your pleasure she accepted these terms and slid off on the near side though not till he had stolen a cursory kiss he sprang down on the other side i suppose i must hold the horse said she oh no it's not necessary 
replied Alec, patting the panting creature. He's had enough of it for to-night. He turned the horse's head into the bushes, hitched them onto a bough, and made a sort of couch or nest for her in the deep mass of dead leaves. Now you sit there, he said. The leaves have not got damp as yet. Just give an eye to the horse. It will be quite sufficient. He took a few steps away from her, but returning, said, By the by, Tess, your father has a new cob to-day. Somebody gave it to him. Somebody? You! D'Urberville nodded. Oh, how very good of you, that is! she exclaimed, with a painful sense of the awkwardness of having to thank him just then. And the children have some toys. I didn't know you ever sent them anything, she murmured, much moved. I almost wish you had not. Yes, I almost wish it. Why, dear, it hampers me so. Tessie, don't you love me ever so little now? I'm grateful, she reluctantly admitted, but I fear I do not. The sudden vision of his passion for herself as a factor in this result so distressed her, that, beginning with one slow tear, and then following with another, she wept outright. Don't cry, dear, dear one. Now sit down here and wait till I come. She passively sat down amid the leaves he had heaped, and shivered slightly. Are you cold? he asked. Not very. A, a little. He touched her with his fingers, which sank into her as into down. You have only that puffy muslin dress on. How's that? It's my best summer one. Twas very warm when I started, and I didn't know I was going to ride, and that it would be night. Nights grow chilly in September. Let me see. He pulled off a light overcoat that he had worn, and put it round her tenderly. That's it. Now you'll feel warmer he continued. Now, my pretty, rest there. I shall soon be back again. Having buttoned the overcoat round her shoulders, he plunged into the webs of vapour which by this time formed veils between the trees. She could hear the rustling of the branches as he ascended the adjoining slope, till his movements were no louder than the hopping of a bird, and finally died away. With the setting of the moon the pale light lessened, and Tess became invisible as she fell into reverie upon the leaves where he had left her. In the meantime Alec d'Urberville had pushed on up the slope to clear his genuine doubt as to the quarter of the chase they were in. He had, in fact, ridden quite at random for over an hour, taking any turning that came to hand in order to prolong companionship with her, and giving far more attention to Tess's moonlit person than to any wayside object. A little rest for the jaded animal being desirable, he did not hasten his search for landmarks. A clamber over the hill into the adjoining vale brought him to the fence of a highway whose contours he recognized, which settled the question of their whereabouts. D'Urberville thereupon turned back, but by this time the moon had quite gone down, and partly on account of the fog the chase was wrapped in thick darkness, although morning was not far off. He was obliged to advance with outstretched hands to avoid contact with the boughs, and discovered that to hit the exact spot from which he had started was at first entirely beyond him. Roaming up and down, round and round, he at length heard a slight movement of the horse close at hand, 
and the sleeve of his overcoat unexpectedly caught his foot. Tess, said D'Urberville. There was no answer. The obscurity was now so great that he could see absolutely nothing but a pale nebulousness at his feet, which represented the white muslin figure he had left upon the dead leaves. Everything else was blackness alike. D'Urberville stooped and heard a gentle regular breathing. He knelt and bent lower till her breath warmed his face, and in a moment his cheek was in contact with hers. She was sleeping soundly, and upon her eyelashes there lingered tears. Darkness and silence ruled everywhere around. Above them rose the primeval yews and oaks of the chase, in which there poised gentle roosting birds in their last nap, and about them stole the hopping rabbits and hares. But, might some say, where was Tessa's guardian angel? Where was the providence of her simple faith? Perhaps, like that other god of whom the ironical Tishbite spoke, he was talking, or he was pursuing, or he was in a journey, or he was sleeping and not to be awaked. Why it was that upon this beautiful feminine tissue, sensitive as gossamer, and practically blank as snow as yet, there should have been traced such a coarse pattern as it was doomed to receive, why so often the coarse appropriates the finer thus, the wrong man the woman, the wrong woman the man, many thousand years of analytical philosophy have failed to explain to our sense of order. One may, indeed, admit the possibility of a retribution lurking in the present catastrophe. Doubtless some of Tess d'Urberville's mailed ancestors rollicking home from a fray had dealt the same measure even more ruthlessly towards peasant girls of their time. But though to visit the sins of the fathers upon the children may be a morality good enough for divinities, it is scorned by average human nature, and it therefore does not mend the matter. As Tessa's own people down in those retreats are never tired of saying among each other in their fatalistic way, it was to be. There lay the pity of it. An immeasurable social chasm was to divide our heroine's personality thereafter from that previous self of hers who stepped from her mother's door to try her fortune at Trantridge Poultry Farm. End of Phase the First